Welcome to another episode of Chefs and Guests on the Spoon Mob podcast feed. This week, I'm joined by Chef Andrew Smith, who most people probably know from his days at Rockmill Tavern, uh, back when Rockmill first opened here in the brewery district, or even before that at the Rossi downtown in kind of the short north area. They're the two places that he worked that probably he was most well known for. But Andrew's been heavily involved in the Columbus food scene for a number of years. So since he moved here from Portland, he did, you know, menu consulting and menu development for Philco and a whole bunch of other places too as well. You know, has come up on the podcast a few different times in past episodes. He's really great friends with Jay Clevin, who also worked at Rockmill with him. And they kind of still collaborate on a few things here and there together too as well. You know, Jay's done some stuff over the summer with special like to-go menus from Cleaver and everything and has helped out at Andrew's stuff that he's got going on too as well. Kevin Wang worked with him too as well on kind of the short-lived uh, Salt and Pine, I believe it was. So he came up during that podcast and a few others too as well. So he's heavily involved in the Columbus food scene, but he's just been kind of, I don't want to say MIA, but he's just kind of taking a step back from the, the restaurant life and is doing his own thing. He's doing this uh, in-home supper club called Roy's Ave Supper Club. There's an article, I think, in Columbus Monthly a few months back about it. I feel like it was like February or something. I don't know if it was this year or last year. It might have been the year before, but I think there was an article in, in one of our local publications that you can check out. He's been doing that and then recently has started to kind of get more into the pop-up space with doing pop-ups at different restaurants. He's done uh, some at Veritas before, the Lox Bagel Shop, and that's under Isla, which is kind of the pop-up uh, name that him and his wife, Devani, came up with. And and she's heavily involved with kind of creating their home for Roy's Ave into kind of a restaurant space too as well. So she does a whole bunch of decorating. She's a, a botanist um, essentially too as well. She has a number of plants and everything. So we've gotten to know them a little bit over uh, the past few months and everything too as well. I had the chance to go to, to Roy's Ave back in August and, and did the Isla pop-up, the latest one here in November over at the Locks Bagel Shop uh, in Short North. So uh, we'll be posting pictures from those. It was a great time, but cool to kind of bookend the year. This is the last uh, chef interview episode for the year. Uh, we have a couple other special edition episodes that we're going to come out with, but it was cool to bookend the episodes of the year because, you know, we started off the first, very first episode we had was Jake Levin. And now the end of the year was Andrew Smith. So it's kind of a nice bookend. They work together at Rock Mill. Rock Mill was one of our favorite restaurants. They've changed over to a pizza concept now, so they, they don't have any of the same stuff like the burger, the chicken sandwich, uh, any of the fish vessels or anything like that. It's just pizza and beer now, unfortunately, but that's kind of the way things go uh, during the pandemic and COVID and all that stuff too as well. So you could follow Andrew on Instagram at Chef A. Smith, also at Roy's Ave Supper Club, and then at Isla, I-S-L-A, underscore CMH are the three accounts. And you can also, his wife, Devani, I think it's at Dirt on Her Skirt, and then at Lady Gastronomy are her two accounts too as well. You can follow her. She'll post pictures from the dinners too as well. But it was awesome to talk to Andrew. He's a pretty reserved guy. He's not um, somebody who's out there promoting himself all the time or anything like that. He's just loves what he's doing, loves kind of the the change that he made from going from restaurants and everything. So we get into all that, his career, you know, coming to Columbus, all that stuff. So without further delay, here's my conversation with Chef Andrew Smith of Roy's Ave Supper Club in Columbus, Ohio. Cool. Thanks again for taking some time coming on the podcast. You come up pretty frequently, actually, over the course of this first year. I know Kevin Wang, I think, worked with you at one point. Jay Clevin, obviously, who, you know, you guys are good friends and work together. But I mean, it's been a, a handful of different podcasts that, you know, your name comes up. Matt Hagen's too, as well. So you're really in the restaurant scene for a while. And then now you're doing the Roy's Ave thing, which is kind of doesn't maybe have as many public eyes or might even have more just in a different way. But in terms of starting where I start with everybody, 
you know, how did you first get started cooking? Was it something that just kind of ran in the family that you always wanted to do? Or how did that kind of materialize? I worked a bunch of random jobs uh, after I got married that kind of led to nowhere. I enjoyed cooking at home and I thought it was like a two-year process of going back and forth. Should I try to do this? Should I not? I got to a point where I just felt like it was something I needed to at least try or I'd regret it. Yeah, just a lot of uh, trying to figure out what to do with my life and not enjoying what I was doing at the moment. Just decided to go to culinary school. Yeah, you work in construction before that, right? I was, yeah. Yeah, which was um, actually really great because I, there was a good portion of it where I knew that I wanted to do something with my hands. I just and build something. I just didn't know exactly what it was at the time. Were you like building like just houses and apartments or stuff? Or was it like office buildings or what kind of construction? My brother owned a business where he built homes. Uh, so I helped him a lot with that. I uh, did a lot of foundation work, some concrete work, just grunt labor work, all kinds of stuff, drove forklift around. At that point, did you have any experience before that in a kitchen? Like first job in high school, was that like working at a restaurant or? My first restaurant job wasn't until I was like 26, something like that. You're doing construction. You enjoy it, but it's not something that like you're passionate about, right? How did it flip to cooking where like you discovered like this is what I want to do? I found myself coming home at night and like watching the Food Network back when it was actually you know, decent. It's kind of garbage now, but I kind of fell in love with Emerald Legacy. I thought he was so awesome. And I found myself sitting on the couch late at night, taking notes while watching the show. And I was like, okay, not, this can't just be for fun. I need to probably do something with this. So you chose to go to culinary school. You went to Western Culinary Institutes, uh, which was, I think, a Le Cordon Bleu. Was it at the time? I know it's out in Portland. Yeah, it's a program. Alex Seidel, who we had on the podcast out in Denver, I think he went there too. Why did you choose that school in particular? Was there a reason instead of, you know, obviously the CIA is the big name, but I mean, Le Cordon Bleu, when it was around, was still a pretty famous name too. I chose it because it was the best one that was closest to me because I didn't want to have to move to go to a culinary school. At the time, it was about an hour drive, and then eventually we moved to the area. So it was a little more convenient. Obviously, you don't run a restaurant kitchen currently, but when you were doing restaurant kitchens, if somebody asked you kind of what your thoughts on culinary school were, you know, if you would recommend that they go to one or they should just get hands-on kitchen experience, what would you say? What would you recommend? I have my own issues with culinary school. I I feel like there was a little bit that I got out of it that was beneficiary. Uh, it was nice to put on a resume at the beginning. But as far as like the actual skills that I learned in culinary school versus just working in restaurants, it doesn't even compare. I worked at a restaurant in Portland for three years. Uh, I started working there when I was in culinary school. And I learned more in the first year of working at that restaurant than I did the entire time when I was in culinary school. They had a very specific way of teaching you things. It was all very old school and it wasn't, there wasn't a lot of adaptive learning. So it was, it was more of this is how you make something versus this is how you fix something if it's not working, which is super important. Like you, those are things you can learn in the kitchen. Like you can learn to adapt and you can learn how to fix something if it's broke because you know what, how to make it. You're not, you're not just following a recipe or, you know, you're learning about it. And I feel like for a culinary school, I didn't really get a lot of that. Was it a one-year program or like a two-year program or? Um, they had a couple of different options. They had one where it was like 11 months 
or something like that. And then they had one where you could also get an associate's degree. Uh, that was like 16 months. And that's the one that I did. You grew up in the Portland area out in Oregon. Is that where you're originally from? Yeah, I was born in Hood River, Oregon and raised in Washington, always within like an hour of Portland. Once you graduated, I think you started working at an Italian restaurant, right? How'd you wind up there? Like how'd that come to fruition? That actually was before I graduated, but it was, I needed to get a job. And I was like, well, if I'm going to cook, I, you know, I don't want to work a construction job while I'm going to culinary school and actually like jump into this. So I just started looking for jobs and it was the first one I found and really grateful for it. It was one of the best jobs I ever had in the kitchen. It was called Ricardo's, this little guy of a restaurant. Yeah. You wound up working like every station there, right? I did. Yeah. I started out chucking oysters and washing dishes, ended up doing everything, helping them write menus to working saute, working every station, yeah, all of it. But it was small restaurants, so there were plenty of opportunities to do that. It was, it was very family oriented. Would you say people are better off working at a small restaurant where you have an opportunity to kind of work all those stations? Or do you think like if somebody starting out worked at like a more corporate restaurant as people have that might be more beneficial just because you've learned pace and speed honestly you can find pace and speed in a non-corporate restaurant but not that there's anything wrong with working in a corporate restaurant it's just there are so many different experiences that you can have working in kitchens and you can learn something new from every job i don't really think that there's one set of opinions as far as you need to work at this kind of restaurant and you need to work at this kind of restaurant in order to gain these skills. Like every chef is different corporate or not. And non-corporate would always be my suggestion because you get a, you get to see a little more freedom in what the chef is doing. It all depends on your work ethic and like what you want to get out of it. So after about like three years at Ricardo's, then you went to blue hour, which is still in Portland. Yeah, I was actually working at both of those places. Oh, simultaneously? Yeah, simultaneously for about a year. I was at Ricardo's for about three years and Blue Hour for about a year before we moved to Ohio. Why'd you want to work at both at the same time? Was it just like, that's just what you needed to do like financially? I was a little bit of everything. I was making like $8 an hour at Ricardo's. You can't live off $8 an hour? (laughs) No, uh, not even back then. So yeah, I also wanted the experience and I had been working at Ricardo's for a while and I felt like it was time for me to learn something new, see a different perspective, but I was able to do both for a while, which, and go to school at the same time, which was kind of difficult. But at that point, what was your daily schedule? Was it like you'd go to school and then you'd go to Ricardo's and then Blue Hour or was it always you were just at one of the restaurants uh, yeah, it was always it was always school first, and then whatever my schedule was at both places. It was kind of like a full to part time at both places, so I was working every single day. It just depend, and I didn't know what my schedule was until the following week. So, what kind of style restaurant was Blue Hour? A lot of like French cookery. I only worked one station the entire time I was there, and it was the Garmage station, and I got to work a lot with like oysters and foie gras and caviar and we made these little pizzas to order which was kind of weird buckwheat blinis to order like just different things like that it was uh they had a a tea time like a on sundays where they would serve like these towers of like little sandwiches tea and i don't know it was kind of all over the place were they just somebody that was hiring yeah 
Uh, it was on my list of places that I wanted to work. And I went in and I didn't know if they were hiring at the time. I just went in to see and, you know, they decided to give me a shot. Why was it on the list? It was considered one of the better restaurants in Portland at the time. I knew a couple of guys from culinary school that went there and worked there. They had a pretty good reputation at the time. And I kind of just wanted to see what that was about. What was, do you say, the biggest difference between those two restaurants that you're working at at the same time? You got Ricardo's, Blue Hour. Not that the ingredients were different, but Blue Hour was a little more high-end. It was also a lot bigger. They, you know, Ricardo's had a chef and a sous chef. And Blue Hour had, like, a chef, executive chef. Like, they, I don't know, they had, like, all different kinds of chefs. So I was like, I don't know why you have this many people called chef in this kitchen, but... Yeah, there was, it was just a bigger operation and a little higher end, different clientele. Summer of 2010, moved to Columbus, Ohio. Without going you know, too much into my, my past, I moved here because of my wife at the time, my now ex-wife. We moved to be closer to family. That was pretty much it to her family. Um, and I continued my search for a job, you know, once I left there and in here, it was a little, it was really different, like uh, Columbus versus Portland, it was just, especially in 2010, it was just so different. And I didn't know who to work for or where to go. I just started looking up restaurants and looking at menus and trying to figure out where I wanted to work. So how'd you wind up at the Rossi? Was that one of the places on your list, I'm assuming, that you were targeting specifically? Yeah, I had gone out and just kind of flooded because the short north at the time was awesome. It's kind of garbage now, but I mean, if we're being honest, I just flooded Columbus restaurants, like the ones that I thought that I would want to work out with a resume. And it was one of the first places that called me back. Uh, and I went in and they were hiring a line cook. So I got a job there and they fired the chef about three months later and promoted me. And I had no idea what I was doing. Yeah. So you kind of just wind up being, you know, an executive chef and just kind of taking over. At that point, what was the highest kind of position you had in a kitchen up to then? A line cook. All of a sudden, you jump from line cook to executive chef. What was kind of the biggest challenge of making that transition? Um, I had to figure it out on my own, to be honest. Like, I didn't, for one, I, I knew that I wanted to cook and that this was the position that I wanted to be in. I just didn't know how to do it. Um, so it was just trying to draw on past experiences and try to create new ones just making a lot of mistakes at times I felt like they were paying me to figure things out instead of paying me to be a chef. Fortunately it worked. I didn't fail so much that, you know, that I lost my job or anything, but um, yeah, I, the Rossi was like a, a big step towards becoming, you know, what I wanted. I just didn't know it at the time. I was just like, yeah, I'll take this job. I figured it out as I went along. Yeah, I mean, at one point, I think you wind up also being the GM of the Rossi, right? At the same time? Yeah, that was a, kind of a nightmare. Yeah, we had also opened Philco. Uh, so the same people that have the Rossi, that had the Rossi, had Philco, uh, which is no longer around. Uh, so I opened that for them, wrote the menu, and I was managing the Rossi, and I was the chef at the Rossi. It was like 90-hour work weeks. I don't know how I did it or why I did it when I look back on it. It was awful. What was the hardest part? Was it the GM stuff? At that point, probably being a chef is, you kind of have it down. Like, even if at that time, like, you don't feel comfortable and like knowing what you're doing, like, you can cook, obviously. So, like, you can always rely on that. But being a GM is way different. Oh, it's very different. 
yeah, managing a, like a schedule between two kitchens and a one front of house was the hardest. The schedule was the hardest part. It's part-time majority of it is part-time work and everybody's always wanting or needing off for this or that. And so managing that was really difficult. And then just managing it all at once was difficult. Uh, even when things were going at their best, it was really hard. Doing Philco and like doing the menu development and all that stuff. How did you kind of approach that? Like, did they already have kind of the concept in mind when they opened Philco and you kind of knew like, all right, we're going to do burgers. And I think at one point they had like maybe corn dog or hot dog. Like it's kind of tweaked diner fare, I, I guess would be the way I would describe it. Well, before it was Philco, it was um, like Phillips County Island. It was, so it was a little county place. It was just like counties and grilled cheese, I think is what they served. Um, and it was, had been there for a while. It was kind of an institution, a dirty institution, but it was there. So they kind of wanted to stick with that, with that theme. That's why they called it Philco. Um, they kind of kept a little bit of the previous name and they wanted to stick with, they, you know, they had Coney dogs on the, on the menu. So we put kind of, we left Coney dogs on the menu and, um, yeah, they just wanted it to be like a diner something a little bit different. And then I kind of just ran with that as far as the menu went. When you're building like a menu for a restaurant that you're not going to be in the kitchen daily, does that affect your construction of the menu, knowing that like somebody else is going to have to cook this? Definitely. More so now than it did before. I mean, when I opened Philco, I had never actually opened a restaurant. I was just really excited about it. And I was like, I want to cook this. I want to cook that. And I didn't take a lot of things into consideration um, I mean, the food I thought was good at times. It wasn't as practical as it should have been. Um, it's something that I've learned along the way. Um, so yeah, definitely when I write a menu for a restaurant, if I'm helping somebody, you have to take that into consideration. Like consistency and like high quality are very important. And how do you achieve that if you're not there? So you have to really take that into consideration. And even uh, sometimes, no matter how much you take it into consideration, it's never going to be exactly what you want. June 2015, you wind up being named executive chef at Salt and Pine. How did that opportunity come about? Because on paper, I mean, I remember talking with Kevin Wang, who worked there too, like the concept, like the talent, like everybody who was involved in the kitchen, like it should have worked for like years and years and years looking at it now, right? Like from the food scene, but, but how did you kind of wind up there? I got, I reached a point where uh, at the Rossi, uh, I loved it there for the most part. But I felt like it was time for me to move on and do something different. Uh, I'd been cooking food at the Rossi for so long. The same, not the same food, but the same style of food for so long. And I just, I started to branch out mentally into other, you know, areas of food. And I just, I wanted to do something different. I was feeling a little stagnant. And um, the owner of Salt and Pine kind of, or the guy that opened it had came to me and offered this amazing position and made it sound absolutely wonderful. And I was like, well, yeah, of course, let's do it. Um, hindsight. Right? What are your thoughts? I mean, without going into too much, I guess, detail or whatever, but I mean, Salt and Pine kind of opened 2015. It closed, what, 18 months later? I mean, you were there for about a year, I think. And then like six months after you left, I think it ultimately closed. Why didn't it work? Was Columbus just not ready for it or like something of that concept or I don't necessarily think that it was that I think it was the size of the restaurant didn't help. It was massive. 
Uh, the layout of the kitchen wasn't that great. There were too many concepts in one. It didn't really have an I- much of an identity. Uh, it doesn't mean that the food from whoever was producing it wasn't good. It was just, there was no identity really, to be honest. It, it lacked that. And then it lacked leadership at the top, like quality leadership at the top, which you really need that in order to make something like that work. And it just wasn't there. Um, it was really stressful. It was slow. When it was slow, it was slow. When it was busy, pack as much as you can in at the same time. That's always a recipe for disaster. And it was just up and down way too much. And it became not fun very quick. So after about a year, you wind up over at Rockmill Tavern. I mean, at that point, were you looking for somewhere else to, to work? Or did Rockmill approach you and were like, hey, what's going on? Or how did all that come together? I parted ways with Salt and Pine. And I had no idea what I was going to do next. I knew that Matt Harvey had been wanting to do something. I just didn't know when it was going to happen. And the timing just kind of worked out. Uh, Matt was a friend of mine at the time. And um, he just came to me when I needed, when I needed a job. Uh, And I didn't know that he was even offering it. So yeah, the timing was just really good with that one. And I really enjoyed my time at Rockmill, to be honest with you. Like I, it was one of my favorite times aside from Ricardo's in the kitchen. Was that your first time having to pair food with beer? Yeah. Other than like a couple of dinners that a few dinners that Matt and I had done in the past, like where I'd done that. But yeah, that was, that was one of the first times. Did they have any sort of like concept of what they wanted the menu to be like, or was that just strictly you could develop it however you want it? Cause I mean, obviously it's changed recently. It's they're doing pizza and whether or not they go back to the actual kind of food setup, I, who knows, but you know, the burger, the biscuits, I think, and the chicken sandwich were all staples on the menu for the entire time for five, six, seven years. Yeah. Uh, he, he had a little bit of an idea. Uh, and I kind of just ran with it. He wanted food that would pair well with beer that was, I don't, I don't like the word approachable, but like, that's kind of what it was. Um, we wanted to just create something that was unique in its own, but familiar to other people. And I was honestly at that point after salt and pine and like, I was kind of just ready to do something easier as far as uh, menu production went. Um, that's kind of when I started to learn more about like efficiency and trusting other people to produce what I've created. I learned a lot of that there. So when it's named, I think eighth best restaurant, I think it was like 2017, I think it was ninth best restaurant in 2018. Did you feel relieved in your decision to, to go over there or do you remember anything kind of about that time when like those accolades kind of came in? Um, I don't want to say it was, there was validation with it. I mean, at the time, I guess there was, I'm not that guy anymore. Like now I just, accolades don't really mean, and they don't really mean anything to me. I, I don't want to sound pompous by saying that. I just don't, there was definitely a time where things like that meant a lot to me. And like, I was strive to be, you know, I want to be named this. I want to be this, but you see those lists sometimes and like, some of the restaurants that are on there and it's like, what does it really mean? Like it was really, it doesn't mean anything. I don't know. There was a little bit of validation, but not a lot. Yeah. I mean, with like lists like that, a lot of it, I think comes down to who's the person putting the list together. And I think people have come to realize that now too. 
And it's no offense to them. Like there's, there are a lot of places to choose from, you know? Yeah. Like if I put out like a 10 best restaurants list or whatever, it's going to be different from somebody else's because it's subjective. Like it's stuff that you like. Obviously I personally enjoy this style of food where somebody else might be super into food trucks or something like that. Like you have to take it with a grain of salt. I mean, all that stuff, even like the Michelin guide and all that stuff too. So, but you wind up leaving Rockville after about like two years, Jay Clevin takes over from you from there and he's there for like about two years hypothetical i mean because you guys still cook together i mean obviously helps you out sometimes with roy's ab and done some kind of random stuff over at cleaver where he's at now you guys wind up cooking off using the same ingredients who wins <laughs> i do i mean I, i'm not i love jay but i do i don't know i don't know jay's food is awesome we kind of at rock mill we kind of turned into the same person as far as food style went uh, for a little while there with rock mill the food was always great but the one thing that always stood out to me was the fish there'd be one seafood fish and it was rotating just kind of depending on what you guys like kind of were able to get in I mean, there's not a whole lot of seafood on a lot of menus around columbus obviously it's location issues and stuff like that too as well i mean i think most everybody uses i think at this point coastal local they're in the north markets and stuff they're kind of like the main I feel like seafood purveyor, but that's what always stood out to me with how you guys did the fish and everything. Was there anything that stood out to you kind of looking back on it? I mean, you guys had rotating pastas. I mean, there was like an elk dish, which is probably the only time I've seen elk on the menu here. Yeah, I think that was, yeah, that was a J dish after I left. That was good. As far as fish goes, it's hard to get fresh fish in Ohio, to be honest with you. We tried to get, the majority of the time we get whole fish and break them down ourselves. That helps with the quality. But as far as the composition of food went at Rock Mill, aside from the staple dishes, it was more about waste utilization for us. It was uh, like, how do we utilize all these leftover products? How do we cross-utilize ingredients? Um, that was our driving force because we were really like, you know, reached that point in my career where I was really trying to make money for the restaurant. It was, it wasn't like trying to figure things out on someone else's dime anymore. It was like, I want to be a part of something and I want to help it make money and grow. And I felt the best way for us to do that was to utilize waste as much as we could. So that was a lot of the thought process that went into a lot of dishes at Rock Mill. So after Rock Mill, if I remember correctly, you kind of shifted towards like menu consulting. Like, did you just want a break from restaurants at that time? Yeah, it was burning me out. It was, it was difficult. I, I think it's just all those stereotypes that come along with being a chef or working in restaurants, you know, they were true for me and it's hard on your health. It's hard on your family. It's hard on a lot of things. And it got to the point where I was just not enjoying it as much anymore. So what gave you the idea to start Roy's Ave Supper Club, which is what you do now for people that don't know if they're like, where did Andrew disappear to? I kind of like the idea that people think I've disappeared. <laughs> I don't know. Like I just, food to me is like less is more. And I think my whole career right now is less is more. We started Roy's Out Supper Club based off of a lot of things. I needed a creative outlet after not working in restaurants anymore. Um, my wife and I wanted to do something creative together. Some friends of ours suggested it because they had been to some other like some similar supper clubs in other cities. And after some encouragement from some friends and thinking about it for a while, we just decided to do one. And the very first supper club we did was eight people. And it was just one night just to kind of get 
some opinions from some people to see how it would go. Just kind of went from there, went from eight people to 10 people to 12 people. And now it's 14. We'll never do more than 14 in a night. Um, and it's only three nights a month. So it's, it's small, it's manageable and it, you know, scratches that itch. When you were first starting it, what was kind of the biggest challenge? Because at that point you're trying to figure out how do I cook, you know, eight courses using essentially your own personal kitchen at that point, was it like dietary restrictions were hard or ingredient sourcing, trying to figure out, you know, obviously you should have a network. I would assume a little bit from the restaurant days too, but what was kind of the biggest challenge looking back at it when you first started? And figuring out how to do it in our, in the home kitchen was the hardest part. Um, you know, trying to, you know, refrigeration issues, you know, all those things, all those things that you have in restaurants that make things easier and have those at home. So it was about keeping things small and concise and almost exact amount of portions so that I could have the amount of room that I needed to store things. Um, and then dietary restrictions are not really much of an issue with supper club. Um, we all accommodate like legit allergies, but not preferences. And those are known about ahead of time. So that's yeah, pretty easy for the most part. Were you surprised at all about like the interest? Cause I remember you guys, I think initially put out maybe like an Instagram post or something like that. And it was basically like DM the account to like basically get on like a, a list. I think at that point. Yeah. That was a dumb move. Uh, it got, I had no idea. We had no idea what it was going to turn into and like the amount of, the amount of times that we've had to turn people down, it got to a point where I just, and I don't know if it's like bad business on my part, but I had to stop responding to people on Instagram because it was every day. It was just like a, at least a dozen inquiries and I couldn't keep up with that. It was just, we weren't set up to keep up with something like that, doing a small little thing out of our home. Yeah. Then you also, you like, you have no idea out of those 12 messages like three of them could live in another state. Two of them cannot even be real people or something. You know what I mean? So it's like, how much time do I have to research like people's usernames to figure out who they are, what they are? So w when you're crafting, you know, because you do it uh, three days a month, every month, how do you decide on the menu? I mean, it changes continuously. So what do you look towards or look at for like inspiration on how to craft like the next month's menu? It's based on a lot of things. Uh, the biggest one being the fact that I don't have to cook for anybody else. I'm trying to cook some things that I would want to eat. And then I just hope that other people would like them. I think a lot of it is also is, is based on other chefs that I'm either friends with or you know, that I've worked with in the past. Um, things that I've wanted to try, different techniques that I've never done before. Like we serve 42 people a month and we serve 42 guinea pigs a month, basically. Um it's, uh, I don't know what I've never, like the things that we produce, I've never made before. And sometimes they're a hit. Sometimes maybe they're not. I don't know. I think that the, one of the things that has been very beneficial as far as inspiration goes, is just reading, uh, lots of books. Also Instagram is super easy to be inspired now. You can see what chefs across the world are doing basically in real time. Uh, whereas before you would have to like wait till their cookbook came out or go eat at their restaurant to be inspired by something they were doing. It's almost like a, an overwhelming situation when it comes to inspiration. You can 
there's so much information out there and technique and ideas. It's just about picking through it and seeing what means something to you and like something that you're passionate about. So when you're like going through, you know, cookbooks, Instagram, whatever, sometimes when like you come across something, do you like mark it down, save it, screenshot it? And like, I'm going to come back to that and see, and then just try and how would this fit in my six or eight course menu for this month? Yeah, I save lots of stuff. I have a big list in my documents. It's just called ideas and it's pages and pages long. And there's no rhyme or reason to it. It's just there. Uh, my brain just kind of works that way. It's just all over the place. But um, it's actually, we serve for a while now, we've been doing 10 courses every month. And it's, uh, I think that also has kind of pushed me to be a little more creative as well. Over the course of the first three years, what is the one dish that still stands out for you that you've made? It's got to be one that you gravitate, that you're like, that instantly comes to mind. Just first one that pops in your head. Like, I don't know. First one that came to mind when you said that was it's kind of like two dish, two different dishes, but how they worked with each other. Uh, we did a dish where it was just a whole onion baked in the oven until it was the first few layers were burnt. And then we peeled it all off and got to the sweet, like soft center of an onion. And it was just served with really good sourdough and a smoked pork broth reduction. So it was just onion with pork and bread. And I don't know, just there's something about that dish that just screamed homey and pot roast and all kinds of stuff, but in a more like refined setting where the onion was the focus with those background flavors of like a roast. And then we took all of the burnt onion parts that were on that dish from the onion and we pureed them uh, with a little bit of salt. Uh, and so you have like the sweetness from the onion still left in there, but also this like burnt flavor. It was, uh, we made no Chino out of it one time, all the scraps, cause we had too many and like the burnt onion, the Chino was really good. Uh, but we made a burnt onion paste with the leftovers and served it with really crispy chicken skin crackers and some little inaki mushrooms that were soaked in gin and soy sauce. So it was just like a little bit of onion paste, a little bit of soaked mushroom and salty chicken skin. Those are two dishes that I kind of go back to if somebody asks me that question. There's so many, but those two kind of stand out. Maybe you haven't thought about this, but is it weird to know that like you're like the industry night host, like for the Columbus restaurant scene, essentially? It started to turn into that. And I actually... I know that I said that I'm not one for accolades or things like that, but I think being able to cook for other chefs and my peers and people that work in the restaurant industry, being able to cook for them and providing a space where they can come and actually enjoy a meal rather than always having to give it to somebody else has been like one of the best things about the supper club. Like it's better than any accolade or whatever is being able to, cook for my peers and have them come back because they enjoy it. Like that means more to me than anything else. Yeah. When you were consulting, I think you were kind of doing both at the same time. I mean, second Philco, you were working on the menu there that never wound up opening uh, in German village. Uh, I think the the first one's gone now in the short North, but yeah, I think you also consulted on the opening menu for Rye River social, maybe too, as well. Yeah. With my first open completely different menu and everything um, for timing. Not on their part, just it was just bad timing. They, the day they were supposed to open was the day everything got shut down. 
you know, I mentioned this earlier, but your fingerprints are kind of, they're all over the, the food scene in Columbus. With that being said, I know you mentioned that, you know, you don't mind that people have kind of, you know, maybe forgotten about you or disappeared. But with that and being kind of this integral part that maybe a lot of people don't know how integral you have been in, in the Columbus food scene, you know, does that change your decision making on it? Like eventually getting back into the restaurant food scene, you know, actually brick and mortar, you know, type restaurant or is because of like Columbus, you know, being well with COVID and everything too, kind of maybe the supper club's the way to go for a little while longer. Um, I don't think the supper club will ever go away. Uh, it's something we may scale it down a little bit in the future, but it's something intimate and unique to Columbus and we don't want it to go anywhere. As far as brick and mortar, you know, getting back into restaurants, if that's something that ever happens, it will be in a completely different mindset. Like it won't be a normal restaurant experience. It would be completely private. I would maybe want to do an extension of the supper club and call it something different. We've talked about, uh, and it may or may not happen sometime in the future, but if it does, it'll be, uh, We'll just take reservations for a couple nights a week and you'll pay ahead of time and show up and you won't know what you're eating. Just like supper club. And I just, it's just easier for me that way. If I try to do it other ways, I won't enjoy it. And I'll, and I'll go back to pouring concrete or something. How beneficial do you think your hiatus, you know, away from the daily grind of a restaurant has been? Mentally, it's been everything. I just, I don't know how, People keep doing it. I don't know. Maybe I'm weak in that way, but I have so much respect for all these chefs that are just still like grinding it out in a restaurant setting. It's not easy. And not just chefs, like just people that work in restaurants in general, but especially when you're in, when you're in charge of something, because when you're in charge of something at a restaurant, you're not just in charge of it. When you're at the restaurant, you're sitting at home and your phone could go off any minute. And that, just that little bit of stress, especially when, when you're not the owner, when you're an owner, I guess maybe there's a little bit different mindset. Uh, that stress means, you know, it means something more to you when you're working for someone else and you're, you have anything could go wrong at any moment. Like you're just constantly on edge, or at least I was. And it, it got to me. Uh, What'd you do during COVID like the lockdown and everything? As far as like the supper club went, we, we did some carry out like some six course carryouts with instructions. Personally, it was a lot of housework and just, and it was a lot of just mental recuperation, I guess. Just, we didn't do a lot, to be honest with you. We didn't do a lot. Since you've been involved in restaurants in Columbus since 2010, how has the food scene changed? I think it's grown in almost every aspect. I don't think that it's much different now than it was in 2010. I just think that every part of it is bigger. So in 2010, when I was here, there were some great restaurants and great chefs. And there still are uh, as far as like small privately owned restaurants and chef owned restaurants. There's always been that in Columbus. It's always been an awesome chef driven food in Columbus. I think there's more now, but I also think there's more shit now. So I think it's just everything has grown. Like there was shit in 2010 and good stuff, but now there's just more shit and more good stuff. I don't know. Like it's hard to, it's hard to explain, but I think that Columbus has overlooked a lot because of the amount of 
commercialized food and the amount of food that's tested out on people here like by bigger companies like almost always shouldn't say always but i think it's overshadowed by those things but i think that we're starting to creep through the shadows a little bit and expose our ourselves as you know an actual like restaurant city what do you think still needs to change for columbus to get to whatever that you know proverbial next level of a food scene in a city would be i just think we need to it'll always come down to not just having a chef that cares about what he's doing but an owner that actually cares about quality and cares about his employees, his or her employees. I, I think that like being passionate about it and actually caring about your ingredients and about an experience goes a long way. And with there's a lot of there are a lot of restaurants in Columbus that are that don't have that. There are more today that do than before. But I think those are like the key things. Like you just care about what you're doing because if you care about it and you treat your employees well eventually you'll start to stick out and you can hold down the consistency that you need. Where do you think the food seeds headed like over this decade? In Columbus, I just, I feel like the pandemic exposed a lot, not just in Columbus, but everywhere. I think that it's heading in a direction of, I could be wrong about this, but like, I feel like eating out is going to sometime soon is going to be more of a luxury than it is just an everyday thing. And I think that a lot of that is based on the cost of ingredients, labor. Like a lot of people just aren't going back to restaurants to work because they had a break from it and they realized they oh, I actually don't like that. It's an abusive relationship for a lot of people. So I think moving forward, like it's gonna things are gonna have to, to change in order for Columbus, let alone anywhere, to to become a food city, like a destination food city. So you think probably we'll go back to mid to late 90s time frame where it was eating out became more of a, I don't want to say necessarily special occasion or like event thing, but it was just less frequent. I would say that. Yeah. I think fast casual food is kind of like took that in a different direction. I mean, I know people that never cook at home and I, I would love to see it go back to, you know, we eat out at a nicer restaurant. And I, I just don't think people cook enough at home. And I, I'm not trying to like to say that, you know, these restaurants don't need your business. I'm just saying, I think that people take the restaurant industry for granted. They don't realize the amount of effort that goes into running something like that. And so they, they expect something for what they think it's worth and not what it's actually worth. And I think until the general population has a better understanding of what goes into a restaurant, like it's not going to change until that happens. This question comes from Andy Smith, who's Ben's friends and sobriety shake. And he was a previous guest on the podcast. He left behind for you. What is your favorite movie or TV show that authentically captures restaurants? Oh, my. I love Andy. That's a hard question. I might have to think about that one. We'll come back to that. What is a question you'd want to ask the next guest? Can be anything. Oh, man, that's hard not knowing who they are. But what's your favorite chef German restaurant in Columbus? Or I, sh I should say chef owned. That's a better question because a lot of people don't, they don't understand that. That like sometimes chef own, chefs own their restaurants and that's why they're better than other restaurants. A lot of it depends on, I think, how much somebody actually gives a shit. But then like you were saying, like you can have an owner who's not in the kitchen, but as long as like they care the amount of like a chef does and like what's going on the plate, then I think it's a, it's a good recipe. I mean, we have some of those places around here too as well, but. 
But yeah, it does seem like your chef-owned restaurants are usually the more exciting places to eat. They need lots of support. So I think that if somebody can actually answer that that question, maybe it will spark some interest in that place for someone else. Set of questions left here. Pretty much ask these to everybody who comes on. So who would you say is the biggest influence on your cooking career thus far? Probably a guy named Charlie Zorich. He's uh, one of my best friends. He was my sous chef at Ricardo's for the three years that I was there. Uh, he taught me how to balance flavors, how to cook fish, how to be assertive, but not be an asshole. He taught me probably more than any other chef or cook that I've worked with. He's still a big influence on what I do today. He's the guy that if I have something that I can't figure out, I call. What's one kitchen item that's not a knife that you can't live without? Tongs or a fish spatula, one of the two. What's one thing in a restaurant when you were working in restaurants that you wouldn't fix yourself? You'd call somebody to come fix it. Uh, that really depends on who the owner of the restaurant. Anything like gas related, appliance related, plumbing, I would try to figure out on my own. I could restart a pile of light, but changing a thermocoupler was not something I knew how to do. Restaurant that you'd recommend that isn't your own. This is a scenario I usually give is, you know, person got delayed at the Columbus airport, stuck overnight. They reach out to you. Hey, like, you know, here for a night, where should I go eat? I mean, it's hard to choose one place because there are a lot of places that I really love right now in Columbus. I'm really enjoying the food at Lobbard right now. I think Tyler's doing some awesome stuff in there. Uh, and the drinks are always amazing. Every, everything there is just so weird, but it works. And that's, I think that's one of the things I really love about it. I love Jutai. And I say that to everybody that asks me. They're not open for dine-in right now. They're over on Bethel Road. It's just really good food, like lots of really amazing noodle dishes and uh, homemade dumplings and things like that. Bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurant, place that you want to go that you haven't been to, place you want to eat that you haven't been to. I would love to go to Spain. I mean, just off the top of my head, that might be somewhere uh, as far as a bucket list destination goes. Just there's so many amazing things that I would love to go and try there. Uh, restaurant, it's not like a big, well-known restaurant, but I would love to eat at Rustic Canyon in California. I think that's pretty well-known. Yeah, Jeremy Fox's place. Really inspired by him, and the food always looks so amazing and kind of right up my alley. Craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working? I don't know. There are a couple of things. The guy stopped breathing at his table. That was kind of crazy. He's just like passed out, and they couldn't get him to come to, and everybody thought he was going to die in the middle of the restaurant. I saw a server turn a corner with a pint glass in her hand. And when she turned the corner, she saw her boyfriend and her other boyfriend sitting next to each other and they didn't know it. And she fell and cut her hand open and had to get stitches. And I look back on it, it's kind of funny. Also kind of crazy. Food or drink guilty pleasures. Is there anything, whether it's fast food or just something in the grocery store that's down like this one aisle that you try and avoid, you know, it's terrible for you, but you can't help yourself? I'm a sucker for a craft singles grilled cheese. I don't know why, but I love it with Wonder Bread. When I think about it now, it's like one of the worst things you could ever put in your body. Favorite dish, favorite thing you've ever kind of cooked, created. When you reflect upon your career up till now, you kind of point to this dish being like your aha moment. Like you knew you could do this professionally. A plate of butter beans at the Rossi that I made. Uh, it was just it braised butter beans in a reduction of chicken stock with fresh jalapeno and a little bit of vinegar and butter. And for some reason, that's just the balance of those flavors and how simple it was. The fact that that could taste as good as it did 
like kind of sparked this thing in me where like food doesn't have to be like everybody else thinks it is. I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan. Not everybody is. Uh, if you were, was there a moment, scene, episode that always stands out to you? If you weren't, like Emerald for you is, and a lot of people is, is pretty influential, it seems. Is there a favorite episode, moment, scene about Emerald that stood out? I mean, I love Anthony Bourdain. I really do. Kind of have to if you're in the food industry. Um, I shouldn't say have to, but you can't really help it. Uh, he's such a big influence on so many people. Uh, with that being said, I did not watch a lot of his shows, to be honest with you. One of the things that I, when I was, you know, young and, and didn't know, I didn't know anything about cooking. One of the things that I did enjoy about Emerald is that he kind of just made things up as he went along. There was uh, a little bit of whimsy to it and he didn't seem, he seemed like he was enjoying it. And I think that was kind of one of the things that I got out of it the most. Favorite movie or TV show that authentically captures restaurants? I remember when the uh, Mind of a Chef on PBS came out, that old David Chang show. I was really into that for a little while. It stopped. But that's one that I could think of off the top of my head that kind of resonates with me uh, as far as the actual movie goes. I don't know. I feel like a lot of them out there don't really capture what restaurants are really like. There is a movie that I watched recently and people might make fun of me for this, but it's a Nicolas Cage movie called Pig. Oh, the, yeah. I haven't seen it, but it's about like he has a truffle pig. Yeah. It deals with, uh, yeah. And uh, like somebody steals it from him and he goes back to Portland, Oregon to find his pig. And it has to do with like the underground restaurant scene in Portland. I think it's pretty interesting. There's some kind of off the wall stuff and then some pretty realistic stuff in that movie as well. Yeah. Mind of a Chef was really awesome. I think it went for like five seasons or something. And then they tried to do like the last season, they put it on like Facebook watch and that was kind of the end of it. I forget who was it. Danny Bowen was the the chef for it for the Chinese spot in New York, I think maybe, but it was only on like Facebook or something. So like nobody watched it. I don't think, cause everybody was like, how do I even get to this? <laughs> I think that's what happened. Uh, where can people find you? Social media, website, reservations, plug all your stuff. We don't have a website. Uh, we do have a social media page for our supper club. It's not for reservations. Uh, it's just to kind of stay relevant and show people what we're doing. It's more of a showcase than it is anything else. All of our reservations are done through word of mouth and email. Going forward, if we do end up with a space in the future, it'll we'll have all of that stuff. But right now, like the Roy's Avenue Supper Club page is, uh, is our Supper Club page. And then I have my own, which is uh, Chef A. Smith. But I don't post a lot of stuff on that. I, honestly, like I, social media is very beneficial for growing a business and staying relevant, being inspired. But other than that, I kind of hate it, to be honest with you. You know, we had the pleasure of going to the dinner that you did in August. Uh, it was awesome. The food was great. So yeah, anytime you need somebody to fill a spot or something, we're always open to it. But yeah, of course, you know, the whole experience and and you read about different people that have started supper clubs and stuff like that. And, and to be able to do it, just like convert your own home into a restaurant and have to just almost like mentally maintain that is such a challenge. I think that people probably don't really understand where it's like, this whole one area of your house is like, no, 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 that don't put anything in there. Like that's the restaurant, quote unquote, like don't move stuff. It's a lot getting, getting ready for it every month. There's, it's like a, a lot on my part with the food, but my wife does so much to make like somehow our home turns into a restaurant for three nights in a row. And 
the fact that she's able to make it so warm and welcoming and still feel like a restaurant and a home at the same time, like it just blows my mind. And the ambiance with all the plants and the candles and like just the way she has everything set up, like it's somewhere you just want to sit down and you never want to leave. How many plants do you think you're up to now? Oh, I have no idea. She has a whole room upstairs that is dedicated as the plant room with a big grow light in there. It's like the plant hospital. <laughs> we probably have close to 300 houseplants. Um, it, it can be a little overwhelming for her at times, but she is, her purpose on this earth is to take care of like all things living. I think when we were there, she she had like must have like just gotten like that day or whatever. It was uh I forget the name of it, but it was like a, a tree, probably about like four feet tall. I know it's a ficus. I can't remember it because we have like a smaller version. Like I said, it's an awesome time. Hopefully, you know, if you guys do expand into the space, that'd be awesome. But if not, it's still an awesome concept. And I think a lot of people in the industry definitely love it. I mean, we had a great experience too as well. So, you know, always look forward to seeing the pictures that get posted, you know, from that month's menu and everything and the new stuff that you came up with. So yeah, make sure to give them a follow on Instagram. Appreciate you coming on and and hopefully we'll see you soon. Yeah. A big thanks again to Chef Andrew Smith for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of one of his days off in between prepping for a pop-up or prepping for Roy's Ab. It was just great to chat with him finally, uh, get him on the podcast. And, you know, we've loved his food all the way back to the the early rock mill days and and he's one of the best chefs we have in the city. It's just he's not in the traditional brick and mortar restaurant form. So again, make sure to follow them on Instagram at Chef A. Smith, at Roy's Ave Supper Club, at Isla, I-S-L-A underscore C-M-H. Those are all three of his accounts um, for all the different pop-ups and food pictures and all that stuff too as well. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Spoon Mob. We're on Twitter and Facebook, Spoon Mob One on both those platforms. Check out the website, spoonmob.com. Always have different wine reviews and stuff like that going up as I kind of drink through some things and different photos and chef biographies and all that stuff too as well. So make check that out. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast from. You can find us on all the major platforms, your Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Google, Stitcher, all that stuff. We're also on YouTube. Uh, so we have a YouTube channel that you can subscribe to too as well if you like to listen to your podcast through YouTube. Though we prefer that you subscribe on one of the podcast platforms. We are on YouTube for you. So it's audio only. There's no video or anything because it'd just be two people on a Zoom call, um, which I don't think is super entertaining, despite some podcasts actually doing that. So, But if you use YouTube for all your stuff, you can find us on there too as well. So you won't miss an episode. Um, pretty much put out everything, you know, on all the social medias, you know, as soon as we can and everything like that. So check out all that stuff. You can email us spoonmob at yahoo.com or through the contact portal on the website. We have two more episodes for the year. Basically, we're going to do kind of a, a, in a roundabout way, a best of. So at the end of all the episodes, I ask everybody a series of questions and they kind of get tailored a little bit, depending on if they're a chef, a restaurant owner, sommelier, something like that, but kind of labeled those the quote unquote burning grill questions. It took forever to figure out a name for that segment. So uh, we're going to take all those answers from every episode that we've done that we've had somebody on and compile them all into one episode. So if there's anything that you missed, recommendations, you know, if you were thinking like, where should I go eat? Like, I you know, want to try some new restaurants or anything, you know, around Columbus. Like these are recommendations from the people we've had on the podcast, chefs and sommeliers, the people in the industry. These are the places that you should go, should try, help support along with their own business too as well. So that'll be coming out. And then I think we're going to do a uh, kind of state of the podcast uh, episode where just kind of 
go into the history of how it got started and the website and how all that got started, kind of where we're at, where we're headed and everything. So both those will come out before Christmas. We'll be off Christmas week, off New Year's week, and then we'll be back with brand new episodes first Thursday in 2022 uh, after New Year's. So it's been awesome to do this. I'm really appreciative of everybody who's been able to come on the podcast, you know, take time out of their off day to spend, you know, 90 minutes, two hours, sometimes even more. I'm just chatting about like their career. Hopefully it's benefited them in some way, whether it's new new business, you know, people hearing the podcast and trying the restaurant for the first time and it becomes part of their, you know, restaurant rotation or, you know, people have gotten entertainment value out of it, driving to work or driving in the office or, or whatever. And hopefully for chefs too as well, you know, some of them, maybe it's been, I don't know this for a fact, but maybe it's been therapeutic, you know, going back through their career and, and looking at it maybe for the first time that they have and sitting down and actually kind of thinking about it for the first time in a while and and stuff like that. So we just want somebody, you know, anybody who listens, we just want them to get something from it, whether it's, you know, new recommendation, something they didn't know before, entertainment value, something. That's kind of the biggest thing. And as long as we're doing that, you know, it's a successful podcast uh, in my eyes. So appreciate everybody. It's been a great 2021. Learned a lot along the way. We'll get into that on kind of our, our recap episode that we'll do in a couple of weeks. But yeah, on to 2022. Excited about some of the stuff we got in the works. I think everybody's going to enjoy it too as well and just be more great podcasts. So appreciate everybody for listening. Continue to help spread the word and we will talk to you guys later.